Amen. Good morning. Uh, good to be back with you all. Yeah, so Rob came back from Hawaii, and I came back from Israel, so we really brought the shaloha in this place. You know, it's a shalom and aloha together, so excellent, but so good to be back in the church with you guys. I missed you, and uh, I was actually supposed to be back last Sunday. I was on the airplane, sitting on the tarmac at 2 o'clock in the morning, ready to take off, and there was a technical issue that they fixed, and it pushed us just past uh, the time when you're allowed to fly out of Tel Aviv. You can't fly between the hours of 2 and 5, so we had to get off the plane, and Actually, Chris and Carissa, who were on the Israel trip, some friends that I met are here with us this morning, and uh, they slept on the airport floor. I found a hotel, so um, they're still tired. I think I'm recovered from the jet lag, so, um, but so good to be back with you guys. Uh, it was my first time to be in Israel, that amazing place that is the epicenter of God's redemptive plan, and a big question that everyone's been asking me is, what was your favorite part, right? And so today, uh, before we get into the text, I just want to briefly share with you what I felt was a special moment from the trip. So uh, one of the days we went to the Western Wall, uh, also known as the Wailing Wall. And for Jewish people, they believe that it is the closest place that you can get to be near God's presence, and that was because at the time when the temple was there, um, the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, it was nearest to the western side of the Temple Mounts. And so Jewish men and women positioned themselves, the men on one side and the women on the other, and they are zealously seeking to be near God's presence. And you'll see, um, you'll see men praying with shawls over their heads, uh, the, they rock back and forth, which I learned, they, they call it dovening, just rocking back and forth in prayer. There's um, reading their prayer books. If you go up to the wall, there's thousands of little written prayers stuffed deep into the cracks of the wall. Some people were singing, some people were dancing, and I'm standing there watching literally one guy pushing his face just up against the wall, like kissing the rocks to be near God's presence and trying to process all of this, like all of my thoughts and all of my feelings about all of that. And in that moment, something I was so grateful for is that I am God's temple. I am the dwelling place of his Holy Spirit. And if you are a child of God, the scriptures tell us that God has made his home in you. The spirit abides in you. And, you know, you can't come any closer to the presence of God than having God Almighty living inside of you. Amen? So at the same time, though, I was watching all of this happening, all of this zeal that was just being shown by these Jewish people, and I, I had this thought, God, where are you in this place? Where are you in the midst of all of this? And I was, like I said, kind of overwhelmed, kind of humble, taking all of this in. And then I looked up. And over my head, I saw 
sparrows and swallows just flying about in every direction over the top of my head. And in that moment, a scripture popped into my mind. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, that says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground without your father knowing it. So do not fear, Jesus said, for you are of more value than many sparrows. And in that moment, I sense the nearness of God in just such a special way that uh, he knows every hair that is numbered upon my head. And that God knows me and he is with me. Later on in the trip, I was talking to Skip Heisick, who was the pastor who was leading the tour. And um, I told him about this experience. And he recalled this other verse to me from Psalm 84, verse 3, that says, even the sparrow finds a home. And the swallow, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altar, O Lord of hosts, my God and my King. You know, and, and just again, how much more value are we to God than many sparrows? And so that was a special moment just on the trip that I remember. Uh, another awesome thing that I did on the trip was I got to baptize people in the Jordan River. I mean, come on. How special is that? The whole time I was looking up to see if I would see a dove descending, you know. <laughs> so, but again, his presence is in us. He is with us. He is upon us. And so thanks be to God for his wonderful salvation and the experience I got to have in Israel. So, yeah, I got to be in the place where Jesus walked. Uh, I was on the same steps, along the same roads, in the same mountains, swimming and baptizing in the same waters, and just to be able to geographically orient myself in that place. And when I'm reading the Bible, I can say, I've, I've been there. And so just a great time. And, but listen, we don't need to be in Jerusalem to be near our God. He is right here in this church. He is in me. He is in you. Again, if you're a child of God and he is with us today, we are his holy dwelling place. As we've already learned in 1 Peter, that we are a holy nation, God's people. So God is pleased to minister to all people across all time in all nations, and yet Israel is a nation, is a place that has a special spot in the heart of God. And so pray for her, pray for Israel. And so I'm glad to be back. And the other question after what is your favorite part is, when are we going? Right? When are we going? So I'm thinking no later than two years from now. I know that sounds like a long time, two years, man. But between a year to two years, it takes a little bit of time to plan these trips uh, we're going to do a Calvary Chapel Palace Verdes Israel trip. I've already spoken with uh, my pastor, David Guzik, from Santa Barbara, and he's already agreed to come on the trip with us. Uh, hopefully the dates will line up with him and we could do that. So does that sound good? Okay. <laughs> Who's ready to put a deposit in right now? <laughs> Excellent. Cool. Well, we'll start planning that. So open your Bibles. 2, 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm really grateful for Pastor Ben Kai who stepped in when I couldn't make it home last week. And thanks to technology, I got to join mid-flight uh, and watch online. I was surprised when my wife walked up with a baby strapped to her, you know, body. Uh, but it was a fun time watching and taking place there. So 
Um, we know where Peter has been taking us through this section of First Peter chapter 3. We've learned a little bit about, um, you know, some challenging but rather helpful instruction about how to endure through suffering. Nobody wants to go through suffering, but uh, if you've read the Bible and you understand um, really what it means to follow Jesus, that we can expect suffering, we can sort of bank on it. And what we've learned last week, though, is that if you do good, who is there to harm you? And even as Jesus said, consider the sparrows. The Father knows when just one of them falls to the ground, how much more value are you than many sparrows? So don't fear Fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. Fear God. Don't fear man. Don't fear even the suffering that you might endure in this life. And so to live a righteous life in Jesus, it does not guarantee us that we will have an easy and pain-free life. In fact, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness' sake. And the New Testament makes it rather clear that to be a follower of Jesus, you will have some measure of suffering in this life because if our master was treated in a certain way, what do you expect to be his follower? But fear not, right? Remember the sparrows, fear not. God has a good and perfect will. So fear him. He has the ultimate plan in mind, and as believers in God, we can be mindful of God in the midst of suffering. And so the greatest way that we can be mindful of God in suffering is to think about Jesus. Right? What did Jesus do? What did Jesus suffer? What was the result of his suffering? What can we learn from the person in the work of Jesus? And how will that inform the way that we might suffer if that happens to be God's will for us? And so that's where Peter has been getting at in this letter. He's continually drawing the minds of elect exiles to consider the finished work of Jesus. He's continually wanting us to keep thinking upon the victorious death and resurrection of Jesus. He wants us to see and to know the end of the story that Jesus wins and that he is the king of kings. Amen? Isn't that so amazing that we know the beginning from the end, that we know how the story ends for the life of a Christian? We know God has a redemptive plan and it is for our good. And so as we read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 22, let's consider that in mind. Let's consider Jesus and how he suffered in our place as we read this text for today. It says in verse 18, for Christ also suffered. Oh, wait, I missed something. Do you guys want to see a video of Israel? I almost skipped right past it. Uh, the wailing wall, so watch this. So you heard the sparrows kind of flying overhead. So that's what I was talking about. I'm watching this kind of dovening back and forth with my cell phone. Um, and, and then I look 
you know, after taking my, you know, my pictures and stuff, I was just sort of watching more, and that's when I saw the guy with his face against the wall, and then I looked up, and that's when I saw the sparrows. I didn't notice, uh, even when the video was happening, I, the sparrows, you're hearing them chirp in the background, you know, and it was just a cool moment. So that's a video from Israel. I got lots of pictures on my phone if you want to see. Um, so funny, I took my kids through all the pictures, and it's just like a bunch of, you know, archaeological digs, and they're like, Dad, this is kind of boring. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyways, um, it's a really cool place. Anyways, let's read the text today. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 22 says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today being mindful of you remembering the great sacrifice that you gave for us when you paid it all at the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you died in our place, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. And God, that you've done that so that we can be brought near to God. We can't get any nearer to God than having your spirit dwell in us. <laughs> thank you, Lord. And so God, thank you that your spirit is here in this gathering of your saints today. Lord, I ask that you would minister to us, that you would speak to us in a profound way that we need to hear individually and collectively as your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So beginning back at verse 18, we read this, for Christ also suffered. This is what I mean when I say that Peter is continually drawing our hearts and minds back to Jesus. We are to consider him who was crucified for us, that he is showing us here that our suffering is connected to Jesus' suffering. Notice that word, Jesus also suffered. He knows what it's like to suffer. He can sympathize with you in it. And the amazing thing is that Jesus does not call us to endure anything that he himself is not willing to endure for himself. That includes suffering. The Bible says that we have fellowship, that is relational connection with Jesus in suffering. There's the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, this is the worst case scenario that can happen in life. The worst case scenario in life is to suffer apart from God. And unfortunately, many people do suffer being disconnected from Jesus. So Christians, we have the amazing blessing of having our suffering connected to and influenced by the sufferings of Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity disconnected from Christ would be miserable. 
The fact that we have Jesus as an example, and not just an example, but a savior, and as a Lord, and as a, as a teacher, is, is that if we didn't have Jesus to look to, if he didn't suffer and die and be raised, this would be the wrong gig to get involved with, right? I, I love what Paul says, if Christ is not risen, like, run fast and far away, <laughs> This is the wrong gig to be involved with if Jesus is not with us in our pain and in our sorrows. But we know again that the story for the Christian does not end in pain and sorrow, but that our joy will be turned into, uh, our sorrow, sorry, will be turned into joy and our mourning will be turned into laughter. As elect exiles, you remember that is how Peter addresses the people that he is writing to. We are elect, meaning that we are chosen by God, but we are exiles. We are just passing through this earth. And so heaven is our home. And we know that because heaven is our home, that there will be no more suffering in heaven. Every tear will be wiped away. Suffering does not exist there. Uh, But listen, although our suffering in this life is connected to the sufferings of Jesus, I want us to know that there is still a very clear difference between the way that we suffer and the way that Jesus suffered. Jesus' suffering accomplished something that no human suffering could ever accomplish. Verse 18, read it again. It says, for Christ also suffered, but he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You know, Peter really packs it in there, doesn't he? he this is just so much gospel truth distilled into one verse. And so what we're going to do is examine what the apostle is saying here about what Jesus accomplished through the things that he suffered. It says right here, uh, by the way, in case you need to be brought up to speed on this, we're talking about Jesus, <laughs> the sinless Son of God, God who came in the flesh, the God-man, Jesus Christ. This Jesus suffered and died in real time, in real space, nearly 2,000 years ago in a city called Jerusalem, a place where I was walking around last week. And Jesus suffered. And what did he suffer for? Well, it says right there, he suffered for sins. That's my sin, and that's your sins, and that's for all sins. Jesus suffered because sin has caused a separation between us and God. Sin simply means to miss the mark. It kind of comes from the idea of archery. You've got a target, and you're just really off. (laughs) And... God's target is his perfect righteousness, his holiness, his justness, his his perfection. And ever since the time of Adam, all have sinned, every single one of us. We have transgressed God's law. We have offended God. We have rebelled against our creator. But Jesus came. And Jesus made a way when there was no way. He came to bring us back to God, as it says there in verse 18. And another key word that I hope that you will see in verse 18 is that word once. Do you see it there? 
See, God determined before the foundations of the earth that the lamb would be slain. We sang about that this morning in our worship. And he gave prophetic signs and messages in order to anticipate this day when the son would be glorified through sufferings. And I love John the Baptist, who was the last prophet in Israel, uh, was seeing Jesus walk along the banks of the Jordan River and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like every prophet was looking forward to that day. They were anticipating this Messiah who would come, who would redeem God's people once and for all. And so one of the pictures that we had in the Old Testament of how uh, God was showing that Jesus only had to suffer once for sin is the story of Moses in the wilderness as the Israelites were wandering before going into the promised land. And as you know, the people were grumbling and complaining against Moses. Moses, we want to go back to Egypt and eat watermelons. And it's like they were just, they were just so complaining to Moses. And so Moses went before the Lord and God told him, Moses, I want to take, have you take your staff. And when you go to the people and they ask for water, I want you to strike the rock. There was apparently this rock face that Moses would strike, and when he would do that, water would flow from it, and the people would be able to drink, and it would be revived. So God told Moses that what he would have to do is to take his staff and to strike the rock once. And then any time after that, if the people wanted to drink water from the rock, all they had to do was speak to the rock. Because the rock had already, already been struck once. Now, if you know the story from Numbers chapter 20, the people started to complain to Moses again. And Moses is like, oh, do I have to give you something to drink? And he takes his staff and he strikes the rock twice. And for that reason, Moses was not allowed to take the people into the promised land. See, even after that, Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh God, I've seen this land, I really want to go in, can I go, can I take the people? And God said to Moses, don't speak to me about this matter again. See, God took that mistake of Moses very seriously. Why is that? It's because Moses messed up God's gospel picture. And the consequences of that are still being seen today. For instance, in some Christian traditions, there's the belief that every time communion is served, Jesus is being re-crucified again for the sins. But that's not true. Peter tells us right here in the living word that Jesus died once for sin, and if you want your sins forgiven, all you gotta do is go and speak to Jesus. Just speak to him directly about that. The, the work is finished. Jesus suffered and died once for sin, and now he freely offers salvation to anyone who simply comes to him and asks him for salvation. Jesus suffered once for sin. Romans and Hebrews has very similar language, only they add a word saying Jesus died once and for all. All means all in the Greek. 
That means you. If you have a pulse, Jesus died once for you. And all you have to do to receive the salvation that Jesus offers is come to him and speak to him and say, Jesus, I believe that you were struck on the cross and your blood flowed and it is my redemption. Your blood can forgive me of my sins. Can I have that? Can I have that forgiveness? Can I come into that relationship with you? And Jesus will answer with a big yes. And so Peter goes on to say that the righteous suffered and died for the unrighteous. That means Jesus died for you. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A great exchange has happened you know it. You can remove, so to speak, your sin-stained robes of unrighteousness that you're wearing, and Jesus will clothe you with his pure and white robes of righteousness. What an exchange. Amen? Amen. The fact that undeserving sinners have been lavished by so great a love from our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, who died and was buried and rose again. So again, Jesus did this, as Peter says in verse 18, to bring us to God. So if you have not received this offer, if you're not in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, today I implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to him. Come to Jesus and ask him for the forgiveness of your sins and he will remove them as far as the east is from the west. So far your sins will be removed from you and you will be given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That means you will have right standing before God so that when you appear before a holy and just God, he'll say, enter into my eternal kingdom. You will have a richly provided entrance into heaven because of what Jesus did. Nobody's going to come to heaven and say, look at what I did, God. It's look at what Jesus did. And so the work is finished. There is nothing that needs to be done on our end. Just come to Jesus and tell him that you need him. So Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Come to that today, maybe for the first time. Maybe you haven't come to God in a while. But the whole purpose is that we will be brought near to God. So, through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been given the gift of eternal life. This is a gift freely offered. And and I kind of just want to end the message right here, but we've got a little bit more text to go through. So I'm going to do something that I sometimes do, and I'm just going to ask, does anybody want to receive that gift of eternal life right now? You've just heard the gospel, and you say, I want to be brought to God through the work of Jesus. Does anyone here want to receive that? Okay. There'll be another opportunity at the end, but... I I don't know. Sometimes we're going to get into the rest of the text, which has to do with like angels and demons and Jesus descending into hell and some stuff that, you know, we're going to get into now. And that's just the clear gospel that before we move on, I wanted to just make sure. So if God's tugging at your heart today, don't leave this place without being reconciled to God. Now, 
verse 19 through 20, let's read what it says. It says, Jesus, when he was made alive in the spirit, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay. <laughs> so Peter writes in his second epistle, Second Peter, that wisdom was given to the apostle Paul concerning salvation. And he says that there are some things that Paul writes that are just hard to understand. <laughs> and I love that. I love that. Peter says about Paul's writing, yeah, the, the other apostle is saying, I don't get it. But I'm going to say it right back to Peter. Hey, Peter, what you're saying here about uh, Jesus proclaiming to spirits in prison and how that relates to Noah, yeah, that's, that's hard to understand, Peter. Does anybody get this text just off of face value? It's an interesting portion of scripture that Bible students ever since the time of Peter have wrestled over what it means. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that it is the hardest portion of the New Testament for him to understand. Many have searched the scriptures, given their best efforts to check all the boxes for what this might mean. We have, for instance, the Apostles' Creed, written around the year 400 AD as an attempt to preserve the core doctrines of the church. And it says that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried he descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Like that part where it's like he descended into hell, where's that from? Well, that is likely drawn from this scripture and maybe a couple others. So what is this telling us, right? Is this telling us that Jesus proclaimed a message in Hades or hell in the time between his death and resurrection? Is that something that happened? What is Peter saying here? Well, here's what's plain to it. By the way, when you find out, just let me know, okay? <laughs> what Peter, what is Peter saying here? Well, let's just start with what's simple, what's plain. Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again. That's clear. It's also clear, right, Jesus was raised on the third day according to scriptures. What isn't clear is what happened in between those three days. And if Peter, in what he writes in verses 19 and 20, are talking about that time. See, what Peter writes is that Christ, having been made alive in spirit, went to proclaim a message to spirits in prison. But that raises several questions. When did this happen? Who were these spirits? Are these human spirits? Are these demonic spirits? Where's this prison? What was the message? Was the message announcement of Jesus' triumph over evil, or was it maybe even a gospel message to set the captivities free? Again, when you find out, let me know. <laughs> but look, this is one of those portions of the Bible where we just have to say we don't know with certainty. Are you okay with that? Uh, you know, as a younger Christian, and I still consider myself a young Christian, but as a younger Christian, I had a really hard time with that. That there would be maybe portions of the Bible that I couldn't know with certainty. 
And, and I think that as I've grown and matured in my faith, I've come to a place where the, that I'm okay with that because I've come to remember that his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts and who can know the thoughts of God. But the very fact that an infinite God has revealed to finite humans his revealed will through his word is just astounding in and of itself. And I kind of like that the Bible leaves us with some questions and challenges, some depths that we'll spend our entire lifetime trying to plummet and yet we'll never reach the bottom of it. But then we'll get to heaven, we'll be like, what, that's what that meant? But here's what I'm gonna do is when I get to heaven, I'm gonna ask Peter what he meant and I'm gonna ask Jesus why he didn't make it more clear through Peter and if, if you get there before me, you'll find out first. So until then, uh, let's just keep the Bible weird and be okay with the fact that there's some things that are hard to understand. But I'm going to give you today three main interpretations of this text. You want to hear them briefly? Okay. Three main interpretations. One is that Jesus went to hell in between the time of his death and resurrection, and he proclaimed like a victory march over the demonic spirits that are in hell. That's one option. Second is that he went to Hades or Abraham's bosom. Go read Luke 16 to find out what that means. And, and he preached to human spirits. That is the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead who were awaiting the work of Christ's redemption. And for those who were righteous dead, he led them free. The third is that the spirit of Christ was speaking prophetically through Noah during the time of Noah as he was building the ark and it was those disobedient people who were mocking Noah at the time who are now dead and are now spirits in prison. So it was like the spirit of Christ speaking through the prophet Noah. I don't like that one. <laughs> but I will tell you what I think it's saying. Just my best thought is I think <laughs> that somewhere in between the time of the death and resurrection of Jesus... The spirit of Jesus, because he wasn't bodily raised yet, the spirit of Jesus went into Hades or hell. We're getting technical there because there is a future hell called the lake of fire, and that's future, but Hades. And he proclaimed his redemptive victory to disobedient angelic spirits who were from the time of Noah. At that time, there was great evil that was increasing upon the earth. There's this really interesting text in Genesis 6 that talks about the sons of God and the daughters of Eve having relationship and evil increasing upon the earth. And so what did God do? Well, God flooded the earth. And he saved one man with his three sons and their wives, eight people total, four men and four women, and he started fresh. He got a clean slate to begin again his work of bringing redemption to the earth. Jesus went and proclaimed to the imprisoned spirits that his death brought that final redemption. And that his redemption has put a final end to sin, death, and the devil once and for all. And, and that's at least what I think it means for now. And like I said, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Peter. So, um, verse 21. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal from dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is saying that what happened during the time of the great flood, which removed the wickedness from the earth at that time, what God did is he spared Noah and his three sons and their wives, and it serves as an antitype. Maybe even your translation uses that word, an antitype, a living picture of baptism. The old was put to death in water, and the new was made alive up out of the water. And baptism, we just had a baptism service about a month ago, corresponds with this. What does that mean? It means that when you see a person uh, being baptized, that is, they are immersed into water, it is a vivid picture of salvation. That when you go into the water, you are saying that you have died with Christ, that your old nature of sin is dead and crucified. And when you come up out of the water, you are saying that you have been raised with Christ in newness of life and you've been given that new nature and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter says baptism corresponds with the flood at the time of Noah and it now saves you. Now, you might read this, and some people have read this and uh, come up with a doctrine that is referred to as baptismal regeneration. I don't think that that is a correct doctrine. I do not think that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Just look to the thief on the cross. Did he come off that cross and get baptized? No, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. But you should get baptized. If you, uh, there's... There's a big thing in the church where we haven't taken baptism that seriously in the church. And more and more I'm convinced of the seriousness of baptism, and it's been awesome. We've, we've had 50 people baptized in this church since we've started. And if you haven't been baptized and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you got to get baptized. We're having one at the beach next time. So mark your calendar. I forget the date. Actually, I bet I have it right here. Hold on, let me find out. July 3rd? Yep, July 3rd. Pull out your phone, put it on your calendar, okay? Baptism corresponds with the flooding during the time of Noah. Why? Because you've entered into the water and the old is gone and the new has come. This all connects us to Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus... It, it does connect us to Jesus because it says that it's, it's not as a removal from dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. What Peter is saying that is, yeah, baptism saves you, but if you do a full stop there, you're missing the next verses where he's not talking about the physical act of baptism that saves you, but the spiritual reality of what baptism is inside of you. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. And so if you've been baptized, it means that you have died with Christ and you've been raised with him through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died once for sin and the resurrection is like the receipt that says your sins have been paid in full. Amen? And if you're not sure that Jesus rose again, we're going to throw up another video. I double-checked. I was at the garden tomb.
Confirmed? Yeah, he's not in there. So, so if he's not in there, where is he? Verse 22. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen? Amen. So Jesus is in heaven right now and he's praying for you. All authority has been given to him. All things are for him and by him and to him. And he's coming back again. He ascended. I I saw the hill from which he ascended. He's going to come back and he's going to step foot on the Mount of Olives. He's coming again. My brother Jim, one week closer. Amen? One week closer. So where's Jesus now? He's in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. The work is finished. He died once and for all. All authority is his. And everything is subject to him. I love how it ends chapter 3 because you know chapter 3 was all about subjection. All about how in our government relationships we're to be subject. And in our working relationships we're to be subject. And in our family relationships we are to be subject. And subjection and submission can be a challenging thing. But do you realize that all of our subjection, all of our submission is ultimately under Jesus. All things are subject to him, even angels, principalities, and powers, everything. So I'm going to end on this verse. Why don't we all stand together as the worship team comes up. As we end here, just got to ask that question again. Have you been brought into relationship to God through Jesus Christ? If you haven't yet, Just come and ask Jesus today. Do you know him? Do you honor him? Do you trust him? Do you love him? Have you come to Jesus to ask for the forgiveness of your sins? He's paid it all. The empty tomb declares it. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, let's end with this wonderful picture of the power and authority of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is high above it all, isn't he? Hopefully you've brought yourself under him for him to be your Lord and Savior. And if you have, let's worship him with all of our might and all of our strength today. Amen. Amen. The worship team will be up here in the front. If you need to pray, you need to talk to somebody, um, we're here for you and let's worship Jesus.